Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and I'd love to have you more involved in the making of the show. So on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, you can both suggest questions for future episodes and put forward potential guests. It'd be great to see you there. However, to our episode today, and a founder that I've wanted to have on the show for a long, long time, and so I'm thrilled to welcome Craig Walker, founder and CEO at Dialpad, the startup that provides a business phone system for the modern workplace. And to date, Craig has raised over $120 million in VC funding with Dialpad from some of the very best in the business, including Iconic, Andreessen Horowitz, Google Ventures, Felicis, and Bill Maris's Section 32. Prior to Dialpad, Craig was an EIR at Google Ventures and founded and product managed Google Voice. Before that, Craig founded Grand Central Communications, a personal communications startup that was acquired by Google. Finally, pre-Grand Central, Craig enjoyed roles in the world of VC as general partner at Sterling Payett Capital and founder and senior director of Yahoo Voice. I'd also have to say a big thank you to John Kim and Masia for the intro to Craig today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today and welcome Craig, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, RegPack. RegPack is an online registration solution designed for any kind of event or program that requires registration or onboarding. Over 6,000 organizations use RegPack to manage their programs, events, even courses and camps. Customers love how it helps automate workflows, increase enrollments and grow revenues. And you can learn more at regpack.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like RegPack did, check out wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this fantastic cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. But that's quite enough of this dulcet English accent, so I'm now thrilled to hand over to Craig Walker, founder and CEO at Dialpad. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Craig, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Jonathan at Workbench for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Not at all. I want to kick off though today with a little about you and how did you make the way from creating Grand Central and ultimately what became Google Voice to moving to the world of SaaS with the founding of Dialpad and what was that founding story? So I had left a job at Yahoo where they had acquired a prior startup called Dialpad, funny enough, and we had started Vincent Pack who ran product for me, he and I started a company called Grand Central that was all about controlling your communications. And at the time, this was 2005, people had a cell phone, they had a work phone, they had a home phone, they had voicemail in every different spot, and it was really annoying. So we gave you a number that rang you everywhere and moved all your features to the cloud. And that became Google Voice once Google came and acquired us in 2007. So we did that for three years at Google and realized that businesses were moving to the cloud for their email, for their CRM, for their documents. And we realized that voice was going to be the next big thing to go to the cloud for businesses. So we left in 2010. We got funded by Google Ventures. I was actually an entrepreneur in residence at Google Ventures for a little while. And we really built a cloud-based enterprise voice product. And then we went back to our friends at Yahoo and got them to sell us back the name Dialpad that they acquired in 2005. So we kind it comes all full circle. We got the name back from Yahoo and now really built on the concept of how people work in a modern world. And a lot of it is fully mobile and being able to do anything from anywhere and make it seem like you are still at work. So being able to have all your business communications just in the palm of your hand or in your pocket with your cell phone. Can I ask, you mentioned your time at Google there. I'm super intrigued. Uh, What were the biggest takeaways for you from that time that were maybe kind of transferable to you and the starting and scaling 
thinking of dial pad. Yeah, I'd say one of the best things about Google was it was very entrepreneurial. And there, you know, it was about a fifth of the size of how it is today, but it, it was like a big, crazy startup inside there. So we were able to we were able to experiment and really have a lot of flexibility with a product. But the one thing that was really, really important was in order to launch a product or a consumer product at Google, it had to be able to scale to millions and millions and theoretically hundreds of millions of users. And so it had to be built and architected in a way that would allow that kind of scale. So the way we rebuilt Grand Central to make it Google Voice was in a cloud-based architecture that really allowed for that kind of scale at high quality. So when we left to go start this company, we already had that training and that experience, and we basically built a modern version of that cloud architecture here. We have paying customers in over 50 countries, and we can turn them on or add seats without even thinking about it. And it's because we were built in that same scalable way. So I think kind of like the willingness to experiment and the requirement to build for scale were two of the best things that came out of Google. I love that building for scale learning. But I I do want to break the interview today up into a couple of different segments. I want to start on some foundational technical aspects of go-to-market strategies, then move to some less tangible learnings on culture and finish on some good old advice on when to say no. Sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. So starting on the go-to-market advice, I want to withhold assumptions and my opinions and put the ball in your court here, Craig. So when is the right time to go large on go-to-market? You know, it's a great question because when you're launching a product, kind of like the natural SaaS progression is you build a online SMB type product first, you slowly add features, you slowly add bigger and bigger customers, and ultimately down the road, you then start hiring expensive enterprise sales folks to go after big enterprises. We had a really different experience in that one of our very first customers was Motorola Solutions. So we won a 20,000 person company as a customer straight out of the gate. And so it forced us to accelerate our go-to-market. And it's really a challenge for any startup of when you put in all those resources to go after the big enterprise, because it's expensive. You hire an enterprise field sales rep. Not only do you pay for that rep, who's generally pretty expensive, but then they also need support of a sales engineer and they also need support of a solutions architect. And they generally have a piece of a vice president who sits over them. And so it ends up when you go to market at the big enterprise side, it's almost like a, an aircraft carrier battle group where you have the aircraft carrier, but it's got destroyers and frigates and submarines and all these other things around it. That's how I kind of feel about enterprise go to market. So it's really trying to find the right time when you really do see that there's that product market fit that enterprises are buying it and are happy and your company can support them. And you're not just getting, you know, pecked to death by ducks. And this is kind of like getting to like your third one of when to say no, but enterprises will ask you for real custom solutions, or they have some special way of doing things that they want you to tweak your system for. And so it's really tempting to say, we want to go after enterprise because they pay the most and they're super big budgets and things like that. But it does come with a lot of cost and a lot of investment. So you got to make sure you're ready for it. So it's a long answer of saying you should know when the market starts asking for it. And then once you do have that 
product market fit, though, really, really going after it hard is important because getting a great enterprise customer just pays ridiculously good dividends because generally they're large and they expand and they pay on time and they're really good customers to have. You mentioned the advice there about custom uh, technology. What advice would you have on customization and some learnings on that? It's it's tough, particularly as a startup, because your sales guys will go out there and they want to get a sale more than anything. They want to get involved in deals and they want to win. And oftentimes they'll want to do unnatural things to win or not unnatural, but sometimes there's requirements that you just don't have at the time. And they'll say, look, if we win this deal, can we get it built in 30 days? And it is so tempting to say yes to that every time because everyone's competitive and everyone wants to win those deals. And you have a great engineering team that you feel you can give more to. But at the end of the day, like the way we look at it is we'll take on additional features or additional pieces that we don't have, but we'll only do it if we think it's going to be for more than just that customer, right? We won't do a custom thing for one particular customer. It's just too hard to manage and maintain. But if we think that it's something that would help a lot of different customers, it's probably already on our roadmap. And then we'll likely move it up the roadmap in priority in order to win a deal. But it is, you'll get a big company saying, hey, we built this custom ERP system that we'd like you to integrate with. And if you just do that, you win this deal, you can go down a rabbit hole pretty quick building a lot of custom stuff. And there's generally no guarantee that that even will get you the deal. So it's something that you got to keep an eye on and make sure that you're not stressing your engineers too much on. Absolutely. In terms of the go-to-market, though, we've discussed it before, and you mentioned the building sales capacity. What have been some of your biggest learnings on kind of building sales capacity successfully with Dialpad and really in sync? What we found, and I think this is a kind of a unique time in the world to be able to do this, but we try to build all of our products that are really simple for the end user and delightful for the end user. So at the end of the day, even though we're selling to a large enterprise, we still want it to be simple enough that a small business could come online and go buy it. So we've had the benefit of having a big self-serve online piece of our business that grows and maintains itself that doesn't require a big sales investment. Then we hired a team of inside sales reps. So we have three teams for our inside sales, one for the West Coast, one, and this is all US focused right now, but one for the West Coast, one for the Central, and one for the East. And those generally work out of our San Francisco or our Austin, Texas office. And they're handling phone calls and emails and really selling probably up to about 750 person size companies. And then for the go-to-market on the enterprise, the big, you know, 750 to 20,000 type employee companies, they're out in the field. They're in New York, they're in Chicago, they're in San Francisco, they're in Los Angeles. They're in all the places where you think all those companies are going to be. And they're out spending nine months to close a single deal. But if they close that single deal, you know, it's a potentially a multi-million dollar deal and it's well worth the investment. So it's really kind of three-pronged, online, inside, and outside. You mentioned inside that. I have a lot of founders come to me as struggling to scale that inside and really make it an effective machine. What have been some big learnings for you in really building and getting that really effective machine of inside sales? It's a really tricky thing to get right, but once you get it right, it's good. So first is you got to have the right product and you have to have the focus on the right buyers. So we look at companies in basically three categories. One is a company that's born in the cloud. Like they're probably less than 10 years old, but they always started in the cloud. They don't come from, they don't have a lot of legacy stuff to switch off of. And we do really well with those types of companies. And those are customers like WeWork or Uber or Domo or Stripe. Those types of companies just make a ton of sense for us. And then secondly, there's companies that are older, but 
but moving to the cloud, like Motorola or Gate Gourmet or Remax or Keller Williams or things like that. And then the third set of companies are the ones that are not in the cloud, are not interested in moving to the cloud, don't have a CIO who sees the benefit of it, and those we try to avoid. So in order to be effective in our uh, inside sales and even outside sales, is step one is really targeting on the right type of buyer and the one where our message is going to make a lot of sense. And then giving them the right training and the right enablement and the right pitch decks, and then just having the proper cadence and activity and follow-up and coaching. And it's just a never-ending cycle of staying on top of that. But if you have the right target, you have the right enablement and the right pitch and the right activity, generally it'll work out pretty well. And we've seen really good uptick in the commercial segment just because we're. You know, it takes a while to get there, but it's all starting to really hit now. For sure. In terms of it kind of hitting and that feedback and reporting, VCs often kind of aggressively push on the go-to-market. Jason Lemkin always tells me that founders should posit and suggest targets that they have a 30% chance of hitting. How would you respond <laughs> to this? And how do you approach the reporting and feedback element? Yeah, it, it's interesting because investors love, and if you look at all the SaaS companies that have gone public and have had these great breakout multiples, most of them have had a pretty good large enterprise story. And they've started small in SMB, but they've made the move to enterprise. So investors love to want to see you go be a big enterprise company. It is a matter of timing and it is a matter of when you have that right product market fit, when you have that right target buyer, when you have that right enablement and everything else. And I've seen companies where, you know, they're burning $10 million a month just to fund, you know, 75 field sales reps. And yeah, they may go and build a good pipeline, but at the end of the day, it's an unsustainable model. So it really is to me, like you got to find out when's the right time to really double down and invest. And so we just closed a $50 million Series D round, and we think we're at that point now, and we think we have the right product market fit, and we've identified the right buyers. So now for us, we're going heavily at it, but we've been at it for seven years. So it does take some time to get to that right time when the dials all line up where you think it makes sense. And it's for an investor or for a founder out there, you know, being able to know when that time is is really important because you can run through all your capital pretty quickly if you do it too quick. Speaking of kind of knowing when that time is, I'm really moving heavily into the scale element. I'm really interested in the kind of transition from that startup to more the professionalization and turning into a real company. How do you think about that without losing the very startup fabric and culture that got one company to where it is? That's a great, great question, just because it is the challenge. We're at 300 employees now, and we're going to be at 400 by this time next year. And so that's a lot different from when it was the first 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 folks. And in those early days, most of you had worked together, like in our case, we had almost all of us had worked together either at Google Voice or even going further back to Yahoo, even further back beyond Grand Central. So you go from this really intimate setting where everyone kind of understands each other because you've worked together so closely. And then all of a sudden you're like this real company with hundreds of people. And all of a sudden you have to do grown up things. So what we did is we hired a great head of HR, Tasha Linegar from Blue Jeans. She came in and put in a whole bunch of structure and proper management training, proper development, proper compensation bans, proper feedback, and just kind of like built the machinery that allows the company to grow without frustration 
frustrating everyone, but still being true to yourself and keeping that culture alive is something that we work on all the time. We do every Friday all hands meetings where anyone in the company can ask me any question and I'll do my best to answer it. And we give business updates and I fly to all our offices and just do everything I can to make it still seem like a small company while it does scale. Because at the end of the day, you, you look up and seven years have gone by and it's, you know, it's a real business and you have to do the right things to help your employees, you know, progress in their careers and get the feedback they need and get promoted and get raises and all those types of things. And sometimes in the startup world, you're just so heads down, you don't even think about that stuff. So it does require some real conscious effort to do it. In terms of that scaling of the team, you mentioned that the additional 100 people you'll have in a year, the kind of core elements being obviously attracting that best talent and then retaining it. Starting on attracting, what have been your takeaways in scaling Dialpad in terms of truly attracting those A-star players? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. One is, are the people we try to attract are the ones that want to get their hands dirty, that want to make something, that really want to own an interesting project. And we do really well when you recruit against, pull people out of a big company, like say, like versus Cisco or Microsoft, just to name a big company by example. A lot of times they're able to recruit and hire these really, really talented developers, but then they work on a tiny, tiny little bit of a very overstaffed project or you're working on one little part of one feature of one product on Microsoft Office, just to pick on Microsoft. And and for a lot of folks, you know, that just isn't all that thrilling. So we give them a ton of responsibility and say, like, look, you're going to be responsible for multi-party video. And there's going to be three of you working on this. And you can experiment different ways to do it. You know, you're limited only by your own imagination. And so I think that having interesting products to work on in a growing space at a growing company that feels like the opportunity is now, like that really helps on the attracting. And then, you know, just having a culture where people are honest and open and fair, and hopefully that comes through during the interview process and they get feedback from their friends who work here, who've gone through the interview process, and it all just kind of like perpetuates. So we have a culture, we have a phrase of do the right thing, and we apply that to everything, including our recruiting. If one is recruiting and is recruiting an external candidate for a position, how does one prevent internal discontent when there's maybe an existing team member or two that would like the promotion. How do you prevent that discontent when the external hire gets the job and how do you kind of think about that? We try to promote from within as much as humanly possible. We've done a pretty good job at that. Generally, if you have to go bring in a real senior executive, it's because it's just a gap on your team. So you know, when we hired a chief marketing officer, we didn't have, you know, this was years ago, but it was clear that we needed a chief marketing officer and and the folks who were on the team were doing good spot pieces, but no one was ready for that role. But generally, we'll try to promote from within and not have to bring in outside senior people. It's actually relatively rare when you do do that, mostly at kind of the C-level. Like you need a CFO, you need a head of HR, you need a CRO, you need a CMO. Those generally are the types of ones that come in, but for developers and designers and product managers and sales reps, those we all try to cultivate and really grow from inside. And I'll tell you this too, that they all love when new people come join the team because there's more than enough for everyone to do and we want to move faster and do more stuff. So everyone's generally thrilled when when the teams grow. Now, I do want to finish today and before we move into the quick fire on an element which I need your help on here, Craig, and it's learning to say no. Uh, in the heat of scale, yeah. scaling customers, scaling teams, it's easy to say yes to everything just to fuel the growth. But we've discussed before the importance of saying no. So starting broadly, what What's your overarching thesis 
focus on one saying no. Yeah, I think you have to be really disciplined on what it is you do really well and what it is, you know, like what's your competitive advantage and not trying to be everything to everyone because there's too many shiny objects out there and like your sales guys will come back with deals that all you have to do is create some custom thing and then you'll theoretically win that deal or there'll be a business development conversation with another company that, hey, they'd love to integrate if you could only do it this certain particular weird way for them. And at the end of the day, you know, I've seen plenty of times or deals where you end up taking the bait and you're like, okay, let's do it. This sounds exciting. And then you spend three to six months working on it. And then at the end of the day, nothing comes of it. And then you're super frustrated because you've now wasted time, changed your roadmap, and it really didn't pan out. So what I try to do is just say, look, we know what we are. We're great at business communications and we're really, really good at voice and video and messaging. And so all of our products are going to be focused around that. And if someone comes to us and says, hey, it would be awesome if you could build a to-do list to go with my meetings or some archiving of something else, or could you integrate with these 40 different legacy systems? Yeah, the answer is no. You know, we could, but we're not going to. <laughs> and the, the reason we're not going to is those developers are going to be, I'd rather have them working on the things that I think are going to be more important, like artificial intelligence. That's something I'm really excited about. We're putting artificial intelligence into all of our calls. And I would love my developers to spend their time on that rather than having to work on some legacy phone system feature that nobody's going to use. So so it really is just trying to be true to yourself and figuring out where you have a differentiated advantage and really double down on that. In terms of kind of founder questions on Wednesday, no, often it kind of arises in two elements, discounting and pilots. In terms mm-hmm. of discounting, how do you think about this more broadly with the scaling of dial pad? And have there been some learnings for you on when to say no in discounting conversations? Yeah, it's interesting because everyone's competitive. You don't want to lose deals. And then the people you're fighting against are theoretically will be in there and offering really, really low prices to try to win a deal. And I think it comes down to really having confidence in your product, that it's a differentiated solution. It provides much better value. And if someone's looking at it and looking at it, comparing it to a competitor and thinks it's just a matter of, hey, this guy went down to X and you're up at Y, then we didn't do a good enough job explaining the differences. And we that's on us. But like at the end of the day, I don't want to get into a discount or I think we've got a uniquely great product and it's going to make everyone more productive and it's worth a couple dollars more. So we try to avoid it. But let me tell you, when you're a startup and you want to win deals and a big deal's right in front of you and they want a lower price, it is hard to say no. But now that we're mature enough and we're big enough and I think we have the right product market fit, we're to a point where we can say no to that pretty easily. I think you're absolutely right in terms of being at that scale to say no. In terms of the other element being the pilot element, how do you assess pilots today as that kind of customer acquisition bridge? And, and what elements would force that bridge into a no for you? Yeah, sometimes people want like it, it almost feels like an endless pilot. I want to test it for three months. And it's like, you know, that's just too much. And we'll do pilots. We do proof of concepts. We do a lot of, we let people use a product is a lot. In fact, we actually have free versions of our product that if they want to have, get comfortable with it, they can go use our free versions of the product and get as comfortable as they want. But by the time of the time it takes to go deploy a large company and to really train them and do the change management and you know really make it a smooth onboarding, you got to be able to do that efficiently and never-ending pilots or long pilots just sap all your energy <laughs> and make it impossible to be efficient at that. So like I, I generally like to say, look, come use our stuff. If you want a full-blown pilot, we'll 
do that, but it's going to be limited in duration. And we can get you comfortable. We have reference customers. We have analysts. We have all these things you can do to learn about us. But saying no to like the endless pilot is something you got to learn how to do. Otherwise, you're just always going to be juggling endless pilots. The endless pilot is never a winner. But I do want to move into my favorite of any interview being the quick fire round. So I say a short statement, Craig, and you give me your immediate thoughts. Does that sound good? Yeah, I love it. So tell me, the quality or quantity of logos in the early days, what's important? The quality. So you want to have ones that will be referenceable. You want to have ones that people recognize. And, you know, like I've seen competitors and I've seen other people's logos and they just put up every logo. Like one guy in this million person company like uses our product and they put up that logo. It loses some credibility when it's not real. So I'd say real referenceable quality logos is the most important thing. What's the most challenging role to hire for and why? Mobile developers and they are just in such demand by every company and it's really hard to find good ones with a lot of experience and they're really hard to get. Tell me, the hardest element to learn is a SaaS founder scaling. Geez, the hardest element is the go-to-market. The go-to-market is really the hardest element. To me, it's not the product and it's not the platform and it's not design or support or any of that stuff. It is, it's when and how do you fund that go-to-market and who's the right person to lead it and when do you go all in? When do you probe? It's really kind of an interesting exercise. Uh, totally off track, but I have to ask with that in mind. Uh, when do you really shift your thinking to prioritizing unit economics and that kind of granular level sustainable financing? It's got to be part of it from the start. We've always tried to be really efficient. And I remember, you know, I was a startup guy in 2001 when the world ended. So like I've seen good days turn into dark days pretty quickly. And so I've always kind of had unit economics on my brain. And, you know, when you're going and pitching VCs and talking to them, you do have to show them your margins and you do have to show them your churn and you do have to show them your customer acquisition costs and all those things. So thinking about that early and making sure you have a sustainable business model is, I think it seems like something that you should all be doing from day one. When I say success in SaaS, Craig, who's the embodiment of this to you? Great question. I think companies like Zendesk, companies like Salesforce, ServiceNow, companies that have just owned a category and run away with it and continue to. Atlassian's been fantastic. Bessemer Venture Partners has their cloud index. And like it's up a ridiculous amount over NASDAQ and over the Dow. And a lot of those companies are in there like Shopify, Square, just cloud-based companies that are crushing it. But I'd say kind of like my, I'd say Zendesk is almost a perfect match. You know, they they serve everyone from SMB to mid-market to enterprise. They've added a lot of functionality over the years and they just continue to kind of run away with the support market. Now, my favorite and final question, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now, you can choose the beginning time. It could be beginning of Dialpad V2 after Google. It could be the beginning of Dialpad V1. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning dot, dot, dot? I would say I wish I had hired a HR business partner or a head of HR earlier. We just added one in our sixth year of the company. And I think I would have done much better on other hires had I had that in place. And I would have like the things that, you know, when you're just battling day to day and scaling and hiring and going to market and stuff, it's like, it's hard to take a step back and really have a strategy around it. And had I done this, if I were to do it again, I'd bring that person in much earlier because I think that that helps you scale. It helps you recruit. It helps you grow without a lot of these growing pains that you go through when all of a sudden you have 300 people. And it's like, wow, this is a real company. We got to go put a lot of more support into it. So that would be the one thing 
that had changed. Craig, as I said, I heard so many great things from the team at GV to Jonathan and Workbench. So thank you so much for joining me today, and I so appreciate it. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, look forward to talking again in the future. What a special episode that was to have Craig on the show, and you must check him out on Twitter at CWalker123, and we'd love to see you behind the scenes at Sasta. And you can follow us on Instagram, where you can suggest both questions and guests for future episodes. You can do that on at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SAS, RegPack. Now, RegPack is an online registration solution designed for any kind of event or program that requires registration or onboarding, and over 6,000 organizations use RegPack to manage their programs, events, even courses and camps. And customers love how it helps automate workflows, increase enrollments, and grow revenues. And you can learn more at regpack.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like RegPack did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's assembled this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And as always, I so appreciate all your support, and I cannot wait to return to the dark side of the table next week with our interview with enterprise investor Ed Sim at Bold Start.